The Health Chat with Open Health Supplies is a conversational style podcast, bringing you the stories behind dynamic, innovative and trending brands in the natural health space. Join our hosts, Andrew Whitfield-Cook, Rick Hay and me, Vicky Solaridis, for an informative conversation with guests that are passionate about natural health and create products making a difference to the lives of many. The Health Chat, bringing you the story behind your favourite brands. Hi everybody, this is The Health Chat. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook and we're here with Phil Rasmussen, pharmacist and herbalist extraordinaire. How are you? Very good, thanks. Andrew. I finally get to interview you. I've been <laughs> threatening you for years. Yeah. So tell us first about your history. Now, you did pharmacy first. Yep. What drew you to become a medical herbalist? Um, I guess I, I did pharmacy in New Zealand at Otago University and then uh, realised that I didn't want to be a pharmacist halfway through. <laughs> so I then went straight into doing a master's degree in pharmacology um, and found that very, very interesting um, because it was always the actions and, and, and the uses, the clinical indications of medicines that fascinated me. Um, but anyway, about six, seven years later, working in the UK in drug information, being a specialist um, researcher mm. uh, for, for medicines information, I started realising that actually some of these drugs aren't that great. They do have a high predisposition for adverse events mm. and there are a number of conditions where natural remedies are actually better. And I think that combined with my rural upbringing, the fact that I knew how to grow things, mum and dad were always growing stuff, um, I put two and two together and I, I started delving in on the other side of the fence. So, okay, so <coughs> is England or UK where you did your herbal medicine training? Yes, yes, right. I, I studied at the School of Phytotherapy uh, with Heinz Elstra as the principal Yeah. Um, and learned a lot from him and many other mentors at the time. I did a lot of clinical work in London at various clinics. Um, I grew herbs at allotments in Bristol where I lived. Mm. I set up a little business making herbal ointments and, and I learnt a lot that way about manufacturing. Um, yeah, from, from day one I was a hands-on herbalist, not just an academic herbalist. Okay, so one of the things <coughs> that you mentioned there about the indications and the actions of pharmaceutical medicines, I mean, this is something that always interests me, um, is that we think that we know how drugs work. And there's many drugs that we go, it works, oh we don't know how. <laughs> Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and um, <clears throat> I mean, even my master's degree that I did on antidepressants and serotonin back in the early 80s mm. was based around just that premise because at the time there weren't any SSRIs around. They had old theories about how they thought antidepressant drugs worked. Yeah. And it was only the new generation drugs that came along, like the fluoxetine, the Prozac, the SSRIs, and, and other drugs that really threw that whole theory out of the water. <clears throat> um, and to be quite frank, even though you know drugs uh, are single chemical entities and they modulate certain receptors and hormones and do things as antagonists, agonists, whatever, um, they can they do do a whole lot of other things. Mm, heck you yeah. know, and and we are only speculating as to how they work. So one of the <coughs> talking about other things, one of the interesting drugs for me is the group of statins, yep. how they have pleiotropic effects as an anti-inflammatory. Yep, and. I'm really interested, I'm going to be really interested to see where the research goes with regards to things like bowel cancer and other yep. cancers. It's really interesting. They're, they're sort of flipping at the moment. Yep, yep, I think so. And <clears throat> what's so great about um, phytomedicine or herbal medicine is that 
more than drugs or single chemical entities. They they can act on multiple levels concomitantly. And you know when you when you talk about depression or inflammation, um, things like some of the medicinal fungi like lion's mane mm. or cordyceps, they're working on both levels. They're not just working on on serotonin receptors or, or adrenaline receptors. They're working on on the whole immune dysregulation. They're working on on anti-inflammatory actions. Uh, they're moderating cytokines. <coughs> they're really helping with that uh, neurological uh, linked link with the, the whole immune system and and that's the joy of herbal medicines they don't just do one thing they do multiple things concomitantly is this something where you think pharmacy might have lost its way or pharmaceuticals <coughs> in that you know we have a very strong drug that does mainly one action we know there's excess reactions but very strongly one action and yet herbs mantis nutrients of course but let's concentrate on herbs herbs have these much more broader but less strong effect. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the key difference between a drug and a, a herbal medicine, in my view, is that basically a drug is a single chemical. It usually is just hammering away at the mm. same receptors day in, day out. Um, whereas a, a phytomedicine, a herbal medicine, has multiple phytochemicals. And so they're a more powerful, powerful army uh, to do a whole lot of stuff because mm. they work in tandem. They're, they're found in nature in the right balance. Uh, they're designed to work together um, and constructively with each other to do multiple things. So the net effect is always less adverse events um, and often just as great in efficacy. Um, so when, when you say that herbs aren't as strong, I mean, herbs can be just as strong, if not stronger, for many, many conditions. And there are clinical trials to validate that, you know, like for echinacea and in certain infections or St. John's wort and, and clinical depression, just yep. as good as all yep. the drugs. Yeah, that's true. But always with much, much less adverse events. Yeah. And, and that's simply, as you say, because they're quite different uh, kettles of fish, really. So do you think part <coughs> of this is because when we hammer down one... Um, one avenue really strongly. I'm thinking here of the Vioxx story. You know, this is only, you know, PGE2. Won't affect PGE1. It's okay. You won't have, you know, mucositis or gastritis from this drug. It's a great drug. Yeah. Whoa, sorry, heart attacks. Yep. Because the signal is still there. Yep. And this is where <coughs> herbs help because they actually act as this broad sort of act, um, intervention yep. on many different levels and looking at the signal that's there as well. Absolutely. I mean, herbal medicines are, are basically used as foods as well. So, you know, if we're meant to eat them, we're meant to assimilate them and, and the body knows how to excrete them, mm. how to metabolise them, how to make them into safer things before they get excreted. Um, <clears throat> chances are they're going to be a whole lot safer than a, than a new chemical entity. Um, and the whole thing around Vioxx is, is reflective of where I think the pharmaceutical industry as a whole ha has really lost its way. Because you know there are a lot of companies at the time who wanted a Me Too drug. They all had to have you know um, a drug in that category. They all have to have a statin. They all have to have an SSRI. They all have to have this, that, and the other. Um, <clears throat> and really, the the innovation, the the truly um, new types of chemical drug that are doing really innovative, revolutionary things, they're getting harder and harder to find. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, the rigs are getting tougher and tougher. So, uh, and the investment required to produce a drug and get it to market is, is huge now. So th they're going back to another, nature to find the molecules. An, <laughs> it's another thing that's driving people back to nature. And nature does have 
so many answers that we've just lost mm. over, over several generations. So let's move forward into um, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So across <coughs> the ditch, he, sp he speaks funny, but he knows a hell of a lot. Um, so, so um, with regards to Maori herbs, now you've got a special interest in this. Yep. And it's something where in Australia, we don't really have an appreciation. We don't use indigenous Aboriginal herbs um, very often at all. You know, you'd have to be right out there to be able to be using them. They're mainly as food sort of thing, the food type supplements. Yep. Um, where did the use of Maori herbs as fluid extracts come into mm -hmm. being? And how does it blend with Western herbs? Yeah. So my interest in, in native New Zealand plants, or rongara as we call them, um, began when I was a student under Heinz Elster in the UK because ah, okay. at the time I was being taught about all these weird and wonderful exotic selling, sounding things like camellarium and, and you know, false unicorn and golden seal and um, all sorts of stuff from uh, countries and places that I couldn't really relate that much to. Mm. Um, and the plant, I didn't really get much of a sense of many of those plants I was being taught. Whereas being brought up in, in a rural area of New Zealand and on the east coast where I used to go to the bush quite often with my dad on tramps and plants and native plants and trees all around me, I really had more of an affinity to them, I, I related more to them. So even as a student in the UK I had an interest in doing stuff with what grew in my backyard back home. Um, so when I went back to New Zealand, having been in the UK for, for many years, I, I wanted to make fluid extracts, liquid extracts mm. out of them. That's the way I was taught in Europe. Um, and so I started dabbling with, with all sorts of things, uh, manaka, kawakawa, totara. Um, there are many, many New Zealand native plants that have unique phytochemicals in them and, and traditionally can do a whole lot of really, really exciting stuff. And what sort of um, respect or homage do we have to give that, you know, these plants aren't just plants, they're spirits, they're, yep. they've got a real meaning, a familial ancestry yep. to, to the tribe there. Yep, yep. Tribes. I mean, Māori, like all traditional forms of medicine, uh, you know, Māori people, um, they regarded plants, particularly trees, as, as almost superior to humans. Ah. Um, they related very much to, to uh, plants, they respected them and, and you know, there was a, a spiritual approach to sacrificing that plant mm. to use as rongla or traditional medicine um, or even to make a, you know, to make a canoe out of. Um, so there was wow. a connection, there was more of a connection yeah. with nature I think to be honest and, and, and you know with COVID what we've seen in the last year and a half I think is a, a bit of a reminder to people to just refine that connection with nature. Mm. Um, we're not only seeing people want to move from Sydney to the Gold Coast or people from Auckland to Ekatahuna, you know, down south in New Zealand um, to be more in touch with nature. They're, they're realising that they need, we need to pay more attention to yeah. what nature is doing. And, Pretty obvious, and, isn't it? I mean, COVID <laughs> has <laughs> taught us a lot. And, and that's where traditional medicine, including Māori medicine, I think there's a lot that we can learn from it, as I'm sure there is from traditional Aboriginal medicine. Let's delve into a few of these herbs, yep. because they're really exciting. They're hard to pronounce for me, sure. forgive me. So yep. one that I know, I'm sure everybody knows out there, is horopito. Yep. Can you explain a few of its actions, and how does it combine with Western medicine? I understand that there was a University of Texas um, study done on horopito with a niece, for instance, with I think it was anti-candida uh, yes, or yeah, something. That's right. Yep, yep. Is that right? And, and uh, I understand yep. it can be blended <coughs> with holy basil. 
Tell us a little bit about yep. this. Is so, really um, Horopito, uh, Pseudo Wintera colorata or Pseudo Wintera axillaris, those are the two main species in New Zealand. We call it pepper tree. Um, and it's quite uh, neat, really, with kids because even a tiny bit of the leaf is like a, a huge combination between pepper and chili. Really, really hot. All right. So uh, one of my um, son's friends calls it fire leaf. When, right. when we went on holiday a couple of years ago, and I gave him a tea, but he forever he called it fire leaf. So. And did he like you or did he hate you? <laughs> oh, he, he still laughs and he still talks to me and we still go on holiday with him. Um, but yeah, Horopito um, only grows in certain areas of New Zealand, particularly uh, highland areas mm. and Tuhoi areas, like in the middle of the North Island where you know there's a lot of traditional Māori culture still. Um, and it was mainly used for infectious conditions of the gut, okay? For, right. for uh, stomachache or food poisoning. Because when you think about it, that's what people used to get a lot of back then. You know, there was no fridges, they, they yep. didn't have, uh, you know, the sort of technology we Sewage, do now around gut food. Gut. So gut, gut, gut is really what Horopito was predominantly used for. But in recent years, the last 20 or 30, it's been uh, commercialised and popularised because it contains a compound polygodiol, which is um, anti-candida and uh, antifungal, um, and that combined with an yeast, as you say, uh, there is a synergistic bioavailability as a result. But yeah, horopito is used for all sorts. It can be useful topically, it can be useful internally. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting New Zealand native plant. And <coughs> let's go into some others. I'm yep, gonna let sure, you pronounce it because I'll murder their names. It, so what yeah. other ones do you really like? Do you really think of the, like the heralds of, of yeah. you know, really I mean, effective medicine. <clears throat> Manuka, um, when I started my company many, many years ago, I wrote a review on Manuka because I, I'd been fascinated by the fact that this honey was so medicinal mm. and it's different to other honey. So what is it about Manuka honey that makes it special? It's, it's obviously something to do with the plant. And so what is the phytochemistry of the plant? What's the traditional use of it? Um, what's different about it? What's special about it? And the same with the essential oil of Manuka. It's, it's uh, hugely effective against a whole range of different um, mm. bacteria. Serious diseases. Yeah, bacteria. Serious and, diseases. and it combines really well with other essential oils too. Um, <coughs> yeah, you know, Manuka is, is a good, uh, very endemic plant to use. It grows everywhere around New Zealand. It's, and you have leptospermins here in Australia as well. Uh, but I guess my favourite uh, New Zealand native plant would be one kawakawa, mm. um, Macropiper excelsum or Piper excelsum. So it's in the same plant family as Carver and, yeah. and, and Piper nigrum or black pepper. Um, it's quite mild, the pepper taste to it, but um, it's, it's been researched quite a bit now. There's about half a dozen peer-reviewed papers on it. Mm. Uh, but basically it's, it's a good all-round tonic for all sorts, as a lot of our plants are, as mm. we know. Um, but if you overindulge, if you eat too much of that uh, hangi, as we call it in New Zealand, that traditional meal, or that extra helping of pudding, yep. or, or too many raspberries, or, or too much of this, um, or you've got period pain or, or um, headaches, um, it can be very, very effective. Wow. Multi use it as a. That's bit of an really anodyne. diverse usage, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could talk for hours about it, but basically. Let's go. Um, <laughs> it, it is an analgesic, okay? There's right. something in it, yeah. um, phytochemically, that hasn't been characterised yet, but mm. I mean they haven't characterised the antidepressant phytochemical or chemicals in St John's Wort yet either, so I think they'll still be looking it's still like another hundred years. That's hopefully. really funny. Um, <laughs> you know, it's the whole herb that you need. Uh, but yeah, kawa kawa, um, the leaves, not the root as, as in kava, it's the, the leaves that are used. Yep. Um, that it does contain piperine and, and various other um, 
similar amides mm -hmm. and, and alkalides, alkalamides. Um, <coughs> so it's a little bit like an echinacea, but um, they do have an effect on the on the gut barrier, um, the permeability. So um, it can help with absorption. Um, it probably helps with uh, things like irritable bowel, even ulcerative colitis. Anything where there's a gut permeability issue, I think kawa kawa can be really helpful. Um, but the thing I, I like to to talk the most about with kawa kawa is overindulgence. You know, if you have got a cramping gut ache, it is really really good. Um, so an anti-spasmodic type effect? I think it's, it is definitely anti-spasmodic, it is anti-inflammatory, we know that both topically, mm. so you can use it on, on the skin for eczema, um, as well as systemically. Right. Yep. So you mentioned alkalamides just before, yep. and I mean echinacea is yep. a, you know, a, a hero herb of everybody I think. Yep. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't use echinacea yep. a mm. lot. Um, but we have to, you know, we sort of... I hope I'm not sort of spreading an opinion here, but um, what do you think about single actives? What's your what's your thoughts on thinking that a herb has a single active like alkalamides? Um, there's no herb, no no herbal medicine that I know of that does have a single active, and um, I'm not not averse to this this issue called standardisation or, or guaranteeing a certain minimum level mm. Of, mm. of certain phytochemicals. Because when I use echinacea, I like it to I like to know how many alkalamides are in there. Okay, total alkalamides. Uh, when I use ginseng, I like to know it's got the right level of ginsenosides. But we've got to be a bit careful when we go down that route that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. I mm. think, Andrew. And um, history will show that we've done that a number of times. Well, St John's Wort was it, one. Exactly, St John's Wort is a classic case. I could argue for hours about it, talk for hours about it. I mean, for years they thought hyperforin was the major bullet. You know, the, the pharmaceutical companies would have spent millions, if not billions, of research to try and characterise the active antidepressant when mm. that US clinical trial was published. And they're still looking because there's no single one. There's more than one. So that is a good example. But but when they thought it was hyperforin, um, a lot of companies began to fortify products for hyperforin, you know, and it was a bit like, you know, mine's better than theirs. This because was some of the German more, more pharmaceuticals, exactly. yes. And lo and behold, three or four years later, suddenly interactions start getting reported, adverse events and, and interaction case reports involving St John's Wort. And again, all hands to deck trying to find what is responsible for that. And paradoxically, it turned out to be largely hyperforin. So that's a very good example of where things can go horribly mm. wrong, I think. If, if you do start regarding a complex natural herbal medicine as being dumbed down to just, it's all about the ocalamides, or it's all about the hyperforin, or it's all about the ginsenicides. And in fact, if you go too far down that route, you do start knocking at the door of becoming a drug. Yeah. And, and it's a slippery slope. So and if that's the fine, <coughs> do medicine. Indeed. If that's yep. the case, yep. do medicine. Yep. But don't try and do. It's it's a really funny thing, like trying to be a leaf waving doctor. It's yep. like if you want to do medicine, do medicine. Yeah, and, yep, yep. and therein is your lot. Your, yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, thing. herbal medicine is, is is a hugely valid career now, and it's just really good that more and more people are wanting to study herbal medicine and naturopathy all around the world. I think um, in Western, you know, so-called developed countries, particularly since COVID, as I say, I think. People are realising that you know we need to look more to nature mm -hmm. for, for a healthier way of living, not just for our own health, but also that of the planet. You know, with climate change and 
and extinction and endangered species, these are really, really serious issues for, for all of humankind. Now, about growing the plants, yep. you know, you can obviously have poor soil as well. So how much <coughs> effort do you have to be aware of, do you have to put into the actual health of the farmland where you're growing the herb to be able to get a good herb. Yep, yep. I mean, it's critical, isn't it? Um, you know, the same way that a healthy biome or gut microbiome or a healthy diet is a healthy life. Mm. Um, if you're growing herbs on, a, on soil that is hugely contaminated with cadmium or arsenic or, you know, mine tailings, then you're asking for trouble, aren't mm -hmm. you, really? Mm. Um, and, and there's more and more research on, on soil health and... and um, and endophytes, you know, bacteria and, and microbes that live in conjunction with plants and, and their symbiotic relationships and, and the bugs that live in the soil and, and how that is really conducive to have a healthy community, a balanced community that's diverse in, in the species range that in turn leads to healthier plants that are grown in that soil. Um, so this isn't just hearsay anymore, it's becoming really good, mm. good science. Well, it's even good farm practice now, Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. If, if you don't want to be dependent on, on having to use glyphosate and, you know, all sorts of heavy synthetic fertilisers every year, you need to recycle. You need to put back what you take out. Yep. So Māori systems of medicine, um, how does that blend? How is that viewed by the Māoris? Um, with blending with Western herbs, is there an issue with it at all, or is it? Yeah, yeah. I think I'm probably not the the person to answer that um, completely. I mean, whoever you ask, you'll get a totally different answer, probably, right. which is good, which is reassuring. And yeah. and I think that therein lies part of the answer, really, to me, because Maori early on were quite adept at adapting to Western ways, mm -hmm. you know, um, to to when you know Europeans first came to Aotearoa or New Zealand. They adapted quite quickly, which is probably one reason why they have survived and, and fared somewhat better, perhaps, than than you know Aboriginal and Indigenous people in this yeah, country, yeah. Um, because you know Maori were seafaring people. They hadn't been in Aotearoa that long when Europeans came, and the, that adaptability is really, really uh, an asset. Mm -hmm. um, so I think even back then, Maori um, learnt to use herbs more internally than they were using at the time because much of the use apparently when Europeans first arrived was topical. Ah. Um, it wasn't necessarily internal, it was yep. only for more serious conditions. So right. that adaptability has always been there, that flexibility, that cherry picking the best of many worlds has always been part and parcel of, of one of the strengths of being Māori actually. A lot of Māori people would be quite proud of that. Mm. <laughs> now you've mentioned topical application quite yep. a few times. What about the bases? Do you tend to use like a beeswax type thing and, and you know, are they are they a better suited herb because a lot of them are quite astringent and quite yep. powerful <clears throat> tasting? Absolutely. Are they better suited for a, a waxy or a, a, a an ointment? Yeah. Or can you mix them into creams? Yeah, well these days it's more, um, you know, proper, you know, GMP manufactured ointments, you know, we do a kawakawa balm for mm. instance and mm. we use organic New Zealand uh, beeswax and, and New Zealand olive oil with it um, and, and a little bit of black pepper to give it a New bit New Zealand of olive oil, oil, hang on, there'll be a battle yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it's possibly not as good as Australian <laughs> olive oil, but let's not go there. Um, but yeah, again, going back to what you asked earlier, you know, th these are the sorts of products that are out there now 
um, but in the old days it was more um, sit inside the, the whare or the little house and, and burn the, the rongora, burn the, the native plants on the fire and, and the smoke would be the main form of contact or uh, you know, make a steam bath out of them and, and you know, that way absorb, even systemically right. I think. Yeah, yeah, skin. for sure. Um, but yeah, poultices, you know, compresses, all that were, were always part of traditional uh, Māori medicine as well. We can learn so much from you, <coughs> Phil. I could talk so much more. Because <laughs> I, like, I, I see so many similarities from, uh, you know, how um, Indigenous Australians use smoke yeah. um, as a medicinal cleanser. Um, indeed, they use it in some hospitals in South Australia now. They're allowed yeah, to, yeah. to do that. Thank you, Dr Panzeroni. Um, um, and then you get the American Indians mm. use teepees yeah. and they yeah, do yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. So this is a real interesting yeah. similarity. <coughs> in fact, I think there's a native plant that's native to New Zealand, which is also native to here. Hmm. Um, <coughs> we, it's Dodonia viscosa. We call it ake ake in New Zealand because ake is what they say in the haka. Ake ake, it means forever because the wood is very strong. It lasts a long time in water, so yeah. it's good eel traps. Uh, but I think here you ah. guys call it the indigenous people here call it hotbush. It's one of the, one of the many common names for yeah. aki aki or dodonia. Yeah. And I think uh, it's, it's used for all sorts again, like it is in India and, and South America as well. It's indigenous around the world. Mm. But smoke was used. You know, they would burn the um, hotbush in, in a small hole, and and the affected part of the skin that they wanted to treat would be you know put over that. Yeah. Smoke in a in a hole, basically. So yeah. A really amazing traditional practice that we can learn from, as you say. There's so much in that head of yours. I I would love to interview again at a later stage about another topic. Would you be amenable to come back? Absolutely, Andrew. That'd be awesome. But thanks so much for joining us today on the Health Chat. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. This is Phil Rasmussen. This is the Health Chat.